Every time you come to this point in the morning service, you expect to hear a message from God based on His Word to you, the people, delivered either through me or somebody else who's here preaching that morning. But today it's going to be slightly different. Today you're not going to hear a message from me to the people. Today you're actually going to hear a message from God to us who are your pastoral staff and indirectly to you. That's why I've asked as many of them as are here to sit up in the front row with their spouses. So today if I tend to look here a little bit more than over there, then you'll know why and don't tune me up. In fact, that's probably the way it's going to be for three of the next four weeks as we look in our study on Highway 27 to the three letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to pastors, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Next week we'll take a break and go back to one of the Gospels and look at the Gospel of Luke. By the way, if you're visiting with us, we're just in a series of messages where we are taking one weekend for each of the books of the New Testament to kind of get a good overview of what the whole Bible is all about. Now, you might ask the question, well, if it's going to be primarily a message from God to the pastors, why should we listen? Well, there's a couple of reasons why you need to listen carefully. First of all, pastors have expectations of their people. Uh, I mean, people have expectations of their pastors. And they should. They should. The question is, are these expectations rooted in the scriptures and therefore divine in their origin? Or are these expectations totally subjective or largely subjective and therefore quite human in their origin? And my hope is that over these next three or four weeks, when we look at these three pastoral epistles, that you will bring your expectations for us as your pastors into line with God's expectations for us. And then even more important, use that to pray for us. We desperately need your prayers to become the kind of pastors that God wants us to be. And my hope is that this will give you fuel to pray for us. That's one reason you need to listen. The second reason you need to listen, even though the message is directed to us, is that in these letters, Paul not only challenges the pastors, he commands them to preach and teach certain things to their people. And much of the material, especially in 1 Timothy that we're going to look at today, although we won't get into the details, much of the material in 1 Timothy is what one person said, boy, this is very countercultural and could produce reactions from you. And therefore, it's important for you to know that when your pastors preach or teach in a manner that is confrontive and challenging and countercultural, it's not because they have a chip on their shoulders, because God has commanded them to preach and teach and also what to teach. So those are two reasons why I think it is important for you to listen to this message carefully, even though the message is primarily directed at your pastors. And so in a sense, I'm having to preach to myself as well. And so I've done that all week long. I've preached the message to myself So I have some degree of uh, integrity before God to preach it to these people who are sitting here. Okay, why did Paul write 1 Timothy? I can't see it here, but look over this way. He said, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. The church of Jesus Christ, the church of God at Rexdale Alliance Church, according to Paul, is both the pillar and the foundation of truth. It is that on which the truth rests, and it is that on which the truth is displayed. The first function of the church in the world, and our church in our world, is to proclaim God's truth and make it known. That's the first function. But because that is the function of the church... Paul goes on to say, Timothy, therefore pastors need to be certain kind of people. 
And he says, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Preserve in them. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Because the church is the foundation and pillar of the truth. God says pastors must become the pillar and the foundation of the truth in the church so that the church can become the foundation and pillar in the world. That's the twofold message. The church is to proclaim truth in the world. Therefore, the job of the pastors is to be bastions of truth and teach the people truth in the church. Now, this is not easy. Twice, Paul refers to it as a fight. <laughs> he says, chapter 1 and chapter 6, at the beginning and the end, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. And then in chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So you and I are called to fight. Now there are some fights that we pastors get into that we shouldn't. Sometimes it is the fault of the people and we get sucked in because we have not been wise. Other times we get into fights or conflicts because it's our own foolishness. Maybe our own drivenness. Maybe our own um, unresolved issues in our lives. Those fights fall says avoid. But there are other fights that you and I cannot avoid. <laughs> in fact, those are fights that need to, we need to wade head on into. They are the fight for the truth. So that the church can become the bastion and pillar of the truth. And that, Paul says, you have been commanded to fight. That's why in this chapter, in this book, five times Paul gives very serious charges to Timothy. He's done it twice already and here's the third one, another example from chapter 5. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. In fact, if you look at these five charges that Paul gives to Timothy, they actually help us structure the book. Uh, for example, the uh, first uh, charge closes chapter 1 and that chapter deals with the problem of false doctrine. The second charge closes chapters 2 and 3 and that deals with public worship and leadership issues in the church. The third charge closes chapter 4 and it deals with preserving two doctrines. The fifth chapter, uh, sorry, the fourth charge closes the fifth chapter and it gives prescriptions for widows and elders. And then a long charge, the fifth charge at the end of chapter 6, which deals with pastoral motivations, uh, concludes both the book as well as the fifth section. So that's one way in which you could uh, think of the book being organized. Your little reading guide and it's there in your study guides for you. And if you want even briefer words, one person usefully defined each section as warning, worship, wisdom, widows and wealth. So that's really what First Timothy is all about. But the heart of it is five solemn charges to you and I as pastors and that conclude each of the major sections. Which is why that Timothy can probably be understood best as a leadership manual. First Timothy a leadership manual. How are you going to remember that? You see that thing on the left? It's a big, big moth. But it's a moth that's wearing a tie. So think of a tie moth, okay? That will remind you of Timothy. 
But also this moth is leading a whole bunch of small little moths behind it and he's consulting a manual, which is a leadership manual. So that's how you're going to remember First Timothy leadership manual. Okay? A couple of weeks from now we'll review all these things again where every once in a while you'll get a quiz. So that's what it's all about. We have been called as pastors to fight the right kind of battles. And so what I want to do in the next rest of the message is to look at four dimensions of this fight which each one of which will be a legitimate expectation that you need to have of your pastors and then use it to pray for us. First of all, he says, stop false teaching. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. That's the first responsibility of the pastor, to stop false teaching. Now, we're not told a lot about what exactly this false teaching is. But there are a few clues sprinkled throughout the book. For example, in chapter 4, verse 1, we are told, these are things taught by demons, that such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So, in addition to demonic uh, influences of this teaching, there's, there's also denial of legitimate pleasures and good things that God has given to us to be received by thanksgiving. And also there was some kind of deceit in here. And, and because he talks, them, talks about them as being hypocritical liars. And why is there deceit? Most probably because there's monetary issues involved. For in chapter 6 verse 5 it says, men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And so this false teaching that Timothy is commanded to put a stop to While we do not know a lot of the details about it, we know these three things. It is demonic in its origin. It involves the denial of legitimate uh, blessings that God has given to us. And it involves some kind of deceit, probably because there were financial motivations behind it. That's all we know. The other thing we know is the effect that it was producing in the congregation. Listen to some of these verses. For example, chapter 1, verse 4. It says, these teachings promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind. But that's a pretty huge load of stuff there. That's what this false teaching was doing. It was agitating the people. And then, look at the other words. The goal of this command, Paul says, is love, and I'll come back to that in a minute, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these. That was another effect of this teaching. Yet another effect, chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and wandering things. They not only wander away from the faith, some of them abandon the faith as well. And then the litany continues, chapter 5, verse 14. I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Now it's getting even worse. They wander away from the faith, they abandon the faith, and they turn away from the faith and begin to follow the enemy. And then a couple more times in the last chapter, some people eager for money, here's yet another dimension, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Probably because this teaching was teaching that was saying, if you do this, this and this, you'll get more money. (laughs) And so people were being led off in that direction. And finally, chapter 6, verse 21. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, 
which some have professed and in so doing have wandered away from the faith. See how complex this issue is? There's so many different ways that people can be seduced into wandering away, turning away, abandoning their faith. So this was the problem that was happening in Ephesus. And Paul says, Timothy, here's your number one fight. Be alert and stop any teaching that does not promote God's work. That's uh, the first thing we're called to do. Now what is, what is this God's work? This is the positive side. The negative side is you stop these things that are promoting God's work. What is God's work that this thing is stopping? What Paul says, as uh, we just sang in that song, it's love. The goal of this commandment to stop the false teaching is so that instead of all these divisions, there will be love and harmony. And then he tells us where this love will come from. The scriptures never leave things vaguely. They, they define this love. They are not some, some vague, mushy emotions. He says, this love comes from three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So here's a great test of good teaching. And by that virtue of false teaching. Is it enabling our people to become more holy? At the same time, is it freeing our people from all kinds of legalism? Holiness needs to come from good, strong consciences where we are convinced of the things we believe, not because somebody is forcing them on us. And of course, that will happen if it's coming from faith in Jesus Christ. This is good God's work. Love that proceeds from a pure heart a sincere, and a sincere faith and a good, strong conscience instructed by God's word. As I said, people, therefore, that is your first expectation of your pastor. You have a right to expect that we will be men and women of God who will be alert on your behalf to stop any kind of teaching that produces all these negative effects and gets in the way of the word of God and work of God and instead that we work to teach those things that promote faith, sincerity, a strong and a good conscience and as a result of that, a loving fellowship. That's expectation number one. Now in order to do that, we move on to probably the central charge. If you want a job description of a pastor, here it is. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, when I was praying in the ravine earlier on, I was reminded when I had to get ordained here almost 22 years ago, one of the papers that I had to write was on my philosophy of church ministry. And this was the verse that God gave to me. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. And then he says, set an example and publicly preach and teach. Those are the three things that God has asked us to do. Negatively, we are to stop this kind of teaching that is destructive. Positively, we are to watch our doctrine, watch our life and set an example and then we are to teach what is happening in our lives. And so let me just take a few moments to unpack each of those. Your second expectation is that we need to be the kind of people who watch doctrine. What does that mean? Doctrine refers not to a scattered understanding of scripture but to a systematic understanding of God's truth. One of my observations has been that in the church, by and large, Christians have a very fragmentary understanding of the Word of God. I often hear statements like, well, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves? 
Actually, that's not in the Bible. That's Benjamin Franklin. But oodles of Christians think it's in the Bible. There are many, many Christians who live on the basis of doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that. Unfortunately, these are promoted by little promise boxes where we pull out one card every morning at breakfast and read it with no idea of the context where it came from. Or memorizing scripture verses at random. Now, don't get me wrong. None of these things are bad. But they do nothing to address this issue of fragmented understanding of the Bible. And therefore, my fellow pastors and workers, one of the things that our people desperately need is for pastors who have a systematic understanding of God's word. Who not only know those individual verses, but know the larger context. That's how Jesus dealt with the devil in the wilderness. Because the devil is a past master at pulling out promised verses, and this verse and that verse. And that's exactly what he was doing to Jesus. He was throwing individual verses and half verses at, the, at Jesus. And Jesus immediately went back and who knew all of the texts of scripture and came right back and corrected what the enemy was doing. And so we need that kind of understanding of the scripture so we can become men and women who know our doctrine well. So that's a very legitimate expectation that you need to have. That the people that, that serve you as your pastors are people who have an increasing grasp of what the scriptures say systematically about all that it speaks about. So that they can not only protect you from what is destructive, but also begin to take you beyond a fragmentary understanding of the word to a systematic understanding. That's, by the way, one reason why we are going through Highway 27. So you'll have a systematic understanding of the whole New Testament. Now, the next thing he says after that, he goes back now to talk about life. He says, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and purity, so that everyone may see your progress. So there's this next expectation, not only watch your doctrine, watch your life. So you and I as pastors not only have to work hard to increase our grasp of the of scriptures in a systematic manner, we also need to be working equally hard for the rest of our lives to internalize that truth so that we are obeying the very things we are understanding. We have to become men and women who try our best to set an example for our people in internalizing the truth and therefore specifically becoming examples of uh, speech, life, love, and faith, and impurity. And notice it also says so that your progress may be evident to all. He's not asking us to be perfect. And people, you need to remember that this doesn't mean that your pastors are perfect. It does mean they are progressing. You have every right to expect that we are continuing to grow, even though there will be all kinds of shortcomings and failures in our lives. And you know that I was struck when it says, so that your progress may be evident to all. Uh, many of you know, maybe some of you don't who are relative to you, people who have been here for a while know that we've lived in that parsonage next door for 24 years. Now, when I, when I tell other pastors, and I get to speak to many of them and talk to them, when I tell them that we lived in the parsonage, they are horrified, because in their mind is this whole idea of, wow, my goodness, that's a fishbowl existence. Everybody can see what's going on in your lives. Now, there's a right and a wrong sense in which people should be subjecting their pastors to a fishbowl experience. The wrong sense is, of course, that you do not respect their privacy. And I've heard all kinds of horror stories about people who traipse through the pastor's house to get to the washroom and this, that, and the other, and all kinds of things like that. And I, I have a wonderful opportunity to boast to all these people about the kind of congregation that I serve. Because you have been so magnificent in your consideration for us that it's not a, just the parsonage, it's our home as well. 
That, but that's the wrong sense in which churches submit their pastors to a fishbowl environment. But there is a right sense in which pastors need to, sub, need to be, see themselves in a fishbowl. And that is in the sense that Paul is talking about. Our progress in the faith should be obvious. And you should expect to see that. Over 20 years ago, I don't know when it was, but I know it was over 20 years ago because that's when that particular couple left. But our youth pastor at that time and his wife, they were either just having a baby or just had had one. And one day she was sitting outside in the lobby one day. I, I think it was after an evening service. Most of the people had gone. And uh, Sheila and Vijay must have been over 8 and 5 or 9 and 10, some 9 and 6 around that time. So we were just walking along and we both talked for a while. And then uh, I think the subject matter must have turned to parenting and all those kinds of issues. And just as I said by and we were walking along, she said, well, Sundar, we are watching you and your wife to see how your children turn out. Now, boy, sometimes that can be an unexpected, inappropriate, and unbearable pressure. On the other hand, if we are to take what Paul says to Timothy correctly, there is a sense in which they have a right to do that. And so that's what I said to her. I said, you know what, go ahead, watch. I don't know what I can guarantee you, but by all means, watch. Because I knew the heart from which that comment was coming from. And I said that not because we had anything to boast. We had no idea how our kids would turn out. But I did know that Paul says, let them watch your progress in such a way that it becomes evident to all. Not by boasting, but by simply living it out yourself. So watch your life, watch your dog. So that's your next expectation, people. Your next legitimate expectation is that your pastors are internalizing the truths that they are studying in such a way that their progress is evident, not by virtue of their boasting, but without them even having draw attention to that. Alright, what's next? Now go back, Paul also says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Not only are we to increase our understanding of the truth of God, systematically in all that it speaks, not only are we to work hard for the rest of our lives in internalizing that truth, then we can confidently preach and teach it to our people. So long as we are moving ahead, doesn't matter if it's slowly, doesn't matter if it's fast, doesn't matter if there are setbacks, doesn't matter if there are failures. Warts and all, as we are moving on, we not only have the privilege, but we are commanded to teach these things to our people. And by the way, folks, Paul says to Timothy, he uses four different verbs. <laughs> he says, urge your people, instruct your people, teach your people, point out these things to your people. And three times he says, command your people. We don't have a choice. So long as we are studying to understand the truth, so long as we are working hard to internalize that truth in our lives, we have been given not only the right but the responsibility to gently and forcefully, as the occasion demands, proclaim that truth to you so that you will follow us in that truth. Now, what are we to teach? What about the subject matter? What are we to teach? Of course, it's all of Scripture. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. So, obviously, the truths of Scripture are foundational. But in Timothy, Paul addresses one particular thing that is going to be hard to get across. He says this, he says in chapter 4, this is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. So, he's about to mention a particular truth that is so important that it deserves to be fully accepted by the people. And then Paul adds in brackets these words, and for this we labor and strive. In other words, Paul is saying it's not going to be easy to get your people to fully accept this truth. 
In fact, I think, at least that's what God said to me, it's not going to be very easy for you to accept this truth. That's why it's hard for the people to accept the truth. So it's a challenge, first of all, to us and to the rest of us. What is this truth? What is this truth that Paul says is a trustworthy saying that deserves to be fully accepted and for that you're going to have to work hard, labor and strife? You know what it is? Chapter 4, he tells us, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance and for this we labor and strive. What is it? That we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. It has to do with an issue of trust as far as the future. Hope deals with the future, not with the present. It seems to me, according to what Paul is saying, that if there is one truth that is important for us to fully grasp, but at the same time very, very hard for us to do, and therefore pastors are going to have to work very hard, first in their own lives and in the lives of their people, it is to learn to put our hope for the future in God first. Now, Paul fleshes it out later in Timothy by giving us a rival to this. There is another rival. Why is it so difficult to put our hope in God? Because there's something else that is vying for that role. And Paul addresses it in a lengthy section in chapter 6. It's money. He says people who, and he talks about two kinds of people. People who want to be rich and people who are rich. People who want to be rich get, look what it says, they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, because of this kind of teaching that was going on there, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. So there it is, coming to us first. Flee from all this. Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take a hold of eternal life to which you were called. So obviously, this is something you and I are going to have to fight about. Which means we are just as tempted as anybody else for acquisition. And then for those who already have, and this is where the hope issue gets sharpened, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That's why it ties back to that verse in chapter 4, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them, so it's not that we cannot enjoy good things. He said, but also command them to be good, to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take a hold of the life that is truly life. I mean, this, uh, this, this is worth a couple of sermons by itself. In fact, those of you who have taken uh, base two, Tom G. devotes a whole hour to this particular aspect of discipleship. But I just want to mention a few things in the context of today, this matter of, of hope. A few things that came to my mind as I looked at these two. First of all, we... It reminded me of the fact that we live in a society where the greatest temptation to substitute hope for something else than in God is money. Because it visibly provides many things that we think that we need. And those who hope in money and therefore want it, he says, eventually pierce themselves with all kinds of grief. Because that love of money is the root of all evil. Money isn't. The love of money is. On the other hand, those who have wealth and hope in it, what it does for them is to keep them hoarding that and trusting in it and therefore not being able to release it. First of all, not to enjoy it and then not to release it for the doing of good to other people. And in both cases, Paul says it interferes with taking a hold of life. Look what he says. In this way, you will take a hold of life that is truly life. 
Eternal life is not something that begins only after we die and go to heaven. The Bible says eternal life is a quality of life that begins now. And one of the biggest obstacles it would seem to taking a hold of that eternal life now is putting our hope in money rather than in God. Which says that as we begin to learn to let go, as we begin to learn the joys of giving, if we have lots of it, or refusing to make it our primary pursuit in life if we don't, is, is one of the keys to the enlarging of our souls and entering whole new experiences in our life with God. And I bet you if I took time to ask for testimonies, there would be dozens of you who could stand up and say, when I hoarded, I had no joy. When I began to give, I began to experience whole new kinds of joy. Uh, and he says, you actually lay up treasure in heaven. What does he mean by that? You know, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. This treasure is closely linked to our heart. If we value and treasure the promotion of God's work, sincere faith, good conscience, purity of heart, love in a congregation, the advancement of his kingdom, and we begin to release resources for that, he says, something happens to your heart. Your heart goes where your treasure goes. And of course, if your heart, if your treasure is in the kingdom of God, your heart is in the kingdom of God, and you're laying up treasures for the future, not because God is going to dole you out a reward, but that, that's what heaven is all about. It's all about God. And so as our hearts are going there right now, we just kind of waltz into heaven and just one step from here to where we, where we are going. On the other hand, it would seem to imply that to the extent that we are putting our hope in things and not in God, and therefore, either pursuing more money or hoarding the money that we have, or whatever else, not just money, it's anything that we have, then our hearts get shrunk. Or we're not able to enjoy the things that are the essence of heaven. And so Paul says, this is a saying that is worthy of full acceptance. And for this, you and I are going to have to labor and strive in our own lives and in the lives of other people. So there's your fourth expectation, people, of your pastors. Not only that they will be alert to and stop any teaching that does not promote God's work, which is love. Not only that they will be men and women who will watch their doctrine and then watch their life. But that they will also be men and women who will forcefully and emphatically teach what they are practicing. And especially in this area of hope, to letting their own lives of generosity demonstrate. You ought to expect us to live before you in such a way that you know that we are hoping in God more than in things. And then, follow that yourself. So that, that's at heart the message. And he adds one more thing. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Persevere in them. In other words, what that is saying is, becoming these kinds of men and women ought to be the primary focus of our lives. We can't be dabbling in five other things. If we are called to be pastors, if we have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this kind of life is to become our preoccupation. If they wake you up in the middle of the night and say, hey, what are you living for? I know what I'm living for. Am I there yet? No. Have I, do I fail? Yeah, probably quite often. But I know that's where I'm going. Give yourself wholly to them. Which means we have to watch for leaks of our energy and leaks of our attention. And there's plenty of those. And to keep pulling them back again to say, this is what I've been called for. And you have a right to expect us that way. Now, let me finish very quickly by saying, what then is our expectation for you? If these are your legitimate expectations for us, what is our expectation for you? And of course, one obvious one is that, of course, you will follow. One obvious one is that you will follow us in these things. But Paul in Timothy says there's something even more important. 
But in chapter 2 verse 1 he says, I urge then first of all, notice the emphasis, first of all, I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. We need your prayers more than anything else. If this church, like every other church, has to become a bastion of truth, both the foundation and the pillar of truth in this society, then your pastors are going to have to become bastions and pillars and foundations of truth in the church. And we're only going to be that way if the church, first of all, prays. We've been told that this is a fight that we're in. And if we're in a fight, we need you to be our shield. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for many of you who pray regularly for us, your pastors. Some of you prayed every day, as one man did, I know, for me. Others of you prayed for us, uh, pray once a week for us. Some others take one particular person and pray periodically. There are prayer chains that prayed when there are specific needs. When Sham needed that medical attention about four or five weeks ago after we came back from Turkey, so many of you prayed for her so faithfully for three or four days, and which turned the tide for her. And so we appreciate the many, many ways in which you pray for us. But we need more. <laughs> there never can be enough prayer by the people for their pastors. Because we can't live this way in our own strength. It's only going to be made possible by the work of God. So you and I are together in that partnership. And so we'd encourage you to pray for us. Now, I said, pray for those in authority and I've taken the liberty to apply it to us as pastors because God has put us in positions of authority over you in this church. But, we are not the ultimate authority. We as a pastoral staff are subject to the elders board of this church. They, they are the ones who are the ultimate authority in this church. And so, as I was bringing this message to a close, I thought, what, what could be more appropriate? What could be more appropriate than to have all the pastors and their wives come up here and have, if any elders are here at this time, to join us and Frank Buchanan is going to do this right away. And as your representative, he's going to pray for us that we might become these kinds of men and women and that you might continue to pray for us. So, I'd like to have you come on up. And elders, if you come just around us and Frank... Would you pray for us? Shem, can you give me the mic? My blessing for you is that uh, as you have worshipped God, that you have received those things that cannot be shaken. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews said. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I trust that today, as you have worshipped Him, that God has built into your life all those things that when you encounter those events in the week that you know nothing about, that all of a sudden you will find the joy of the Lord as strength rising up within you and you will not be shaken in the face of whatever awaits you this week. Go in Jesus' name.